everyone. Welcome to Black Ant, a candid conversation about race, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm April. And I'm Jonathan. And we're brother and sister, looking to discuss how race informs current events, important issues, and what white people looking to make a difference can do moving forward. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the film When They See Us, uh, which is the story of the Central Park Five. It's a Netflix series that came out recently, um, and so we'll sort of be having our reactions to that. Uh, the bulk of the uh, episode will be an interview with Kia Hufain, who is a an expert in urban education, um, and we really are looking forward to discussing how race uh, crosses over with education. Um, and then we'll leave you, as always, with an action item that we're excited to see implemented and sort of put out into the world as you go forward uh, as, as racial allies. So with that, uh, April, what's, uh, what's on your mind? So last week I got around to watching Ava DuVernay's When They See Us on Netflix um, about the so-called uh, Central Park Five, uh, the jogger case in New York City in 1989. When They See Us tells the story of Antron McRae, Yusuf Salam, Corey Wise, uh, Raymond Santana Jr., and Kevin Richardson, and how they were falsely accused of um, assault, rape, and attempted murder, um, and later how they were tried and wrongly convicted, um, in large part based on uh, coerced confessions. So Ava DuVernay uh, portrays the young boys in the story and their their lives in New York City, um, the event itself in Central Park, how they were caught up in the situation and eventually taken to the police station, coerced into confessing to something they didn't do, and eventually leading to the boys serving time in jail um, between 5 and 12 years. I think it's important to say ultimately that these boys were fully exonerated, not only with DNA evidence, but with the confession of the actual rapist who was turned out to be a serial rapist um, and had done this to a lot of other women. And and ultimately confessed to it. So these boys had served all of this jail time uh, because of being coerced by law enforcement and and were completely innocent. I haven't watched the series yet, and I don't know if I will. Um, it seems like it's something that would be really painful to watch, and I've seen a lot of other people, a lot of other black men especially, talking about how painful the series is for them to watch, but how important it is. Um, and so for a lot of us, it is something that um, it's a, choosing not to watch it is sort of a self-protective measure. And the fact that we're only getting around to chatting about this now on the podcast is a testament to that because I don't think April was up to watching it either. And I wasn't. April, it, it took a while. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I guess, April, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the series and sort of your reaction to it because we you know, we haven't really talked about it yet, and I, um, you've sort of needed some time to process it. And so, yeah, what did you think? One thing that was really clear was um, how sincere and intimate the actor portrayals were. Um, the five boys who played the, the young, um, now exonerated five men, you could see how closely they related to the story themselves just being young black men Hmm. Um, and uh, Ava DuVernay made a point to have therapists on the set um, while they were filming because it can be traumatic to play um, a role that is so devastating and could have so easily been the actors themselves um, just because the way they look 
the film itself was, um, watching it was one of those experiences where, you know, I know I'm going to learn something, but I'm sobbing the whole way through, so is it, is it worth it? I think that's the decision people have to make uh, for themselves, and there's no right answer to that. I totally understand black people not wanting to watch or not being able to watch because it's such a, it's such a hard and devastating story to, to process. Yeah, I mean, and that is, it's weird because I have this, I'm torn because I want to watch it. Like, I want to see all the great acting and I want to see anything that Ava DuVernay makes is worth watching because she's so brilliant. But I can't, I can't bring myself to. Um, but I think part of what makes it so hard to watch are the scenes in particular where you see the, um, the woman at the time who was head of the sex crimes unit in uh, New York City and also the prosecutors who, you know, they, they knew what they were doing was wrong and, and they continued on and, and ruined these boys' lives. That's such a hard thing to, to digest and to witness and to know that today these five men are alive and broken because of what was done to them. I also watched Oprah's um, interview, her hour interview afterward with the um, actors and the uh, exonerated men themselves, all five of them. It was really tough to see Corey Wise, who was 16 at the time, um, the oldest of the five men. Um, he served the most time in jail, 12 years. He was beaten in jail consistently. He was, um, you know, tortured in solitary confinement with um, no air conditioning. Jesus. I believe he had a pretty severe learning disability, and so it was hard for him to read, which was brought up in the trial and was used against him. He, he just, he really, really suffered, and he could, it seemed during Oprah's interview that it was hard for him to even express himself. Now, this is what, 30 years later, um, that he is still, while strong and um, surviving and doing great things in the world now, still really broken and affected um, by the, the horrors he experienced. I just keep thinking while you're describing what these boys went through and what, how the, the series sort of portrays it, I just keep thinking to myself, oh my goodness, white people need to watch this. The every every white American needs to watch this and watch it and 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 um, recognize how painful it is, even to them, to see all, someone going through this type of trauma and then try to think what, what it must feel like to be a member of a group that has, in, in a lot of ways, this type of relationship to law enforcement and to the criminal justice system. And so, you know, any black boy out there is, depending on the city, that the stats are taking from, you know, three to five times more likely to be, to encounter police generally, um, and much more likely to be searched, stopped, searched, and then hurt physically and also arrested. The actual... Uh, chances of that happening increase based on your race. And so people in whole, there are whole communities of people who have a good amount of fear um, 
for law enforcement because of this and because of how quickly and easily someone's life can just change based on the whim of a of a police officer or a prosecutor that needs to close a case or that needs to to have a villain to pin a a charge on um and it happens just all the time and that's so clearly what happened here um the the head of the sex crimes department and the prosecutor they decided that these five young boys were guilty and then they acted in that way forcing them to say that they were guilty to to you know end this case and to quote solve this crime um it was so clear that these boys had nothing to do with the crime and we know that the um the detectives and the prosecutors that it's so clear that they knew that they were wrong I agree that it's it's so important that white people watch this film. And while you're watching it, um, remember that, yes, this case in particular happened in the past, but this is happening right now still. I think we could so easily say, oh, that was so horrible. I'm so sorry that happened to them. Um, and now they're free. Great. That's not the case. These boys were, their lives were ruined. And yes, this case happened in the past, but the lasting effects of the of their conviction and and you know serving time in jail are still so uh, relevant today, and these things are still happening. And yeah, I mean, this is something that is. Um, I just don't think people understand how common this is. So this is something that, to of course a much lesser extent. I experienced when I was in law school, I was, um, you know, pressured into recanting a, an experience that I had with, with police. So I, you know, sort of filed a complaint about local PD being rough, rough and rude and mean to me and was ultimately pressured by the FBI to recant that, that experience and recant that statement because they needed to close this case and they couldn't find these two officers. And so this is something that like is very, you know, this is close to my heart, and you think to yourself, how could it be that someone would admit to something that they didn't do, or how could it be that someone would recant something that they, you know, that actually did happen, and it's a hard thing to describe, but when you're sort of at the hands of law enforcement who is, they are trained to, to, to get an answer, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the truth, they're trained to get an answer and a conviction, and like April said, like you said, you know, they're, they were sort of working backwards in that case, when in, in the case that's portrayed and when they see us. Yeah, they um, made up their minds, and then they picked these boys and said, You're, you guys are going to be the um, perpetrators. And they worked that way to get these boys to admit that they did something they didn't do. I also, um, something that I thought what Ava DuVernay made uh, very clear in the film was how black boys are seen by other people one as much older than they really are. These were these were boys. These were kids. 14. 14, 15, and 16. I think about myself at that age. I was, you know, you don't know about life. You're, you're a young. Child. You're Your a brain kid. is not developed. You are, your life is about having fun and hanging out with your friends and going to school or not going to school. That's it. I mean, you, these were children. And, you know, the police treated them as adults, as men, as animals, as a pack. They described them as if they weren't even human. 
And I think it's important to notice how how differently we see young white boys and young black boys and, and how they're treated by the police specifically. Another part that made it so hard to watch um, is that, you know, even today, the people who uh, contributed to the boys' imprisonment are not sorry. They've never, these men have never received an apology from New York State, um, and it's, it's, it's just devastating. And not to mention the president of the United States just the other day, this didn't even make news, but just the other day said on camera that he does not he does not believe that these boys were exonerated. He believes that they admitted to it, and there's both both sides to this case that people people are only talking about one side of this case. So he openly admitted and and sort of refreshed his call for their uh, for their execution. Donald Trump took out back in in the '80s when this was happening. Took out a full page um, ad in local papers, I think in the Times. Um, calling for New York to bring back the death penalty so these boys could be executed. Um, and he's never, he's never apologized for that. And like I said just the other day, he, he affirmed it. So this is not, a, this is not a, an agreed-upon travesty here by everyone. We all do, people that, that I assume that are listening to this podcast and folks that are sort of in tune with, with the, the flaws in, social, in, in the justice system. Um, know about this and and know that it, it these boys were falsely convicted, but there's a whole area of the country and a whole section of people, including the leader of the country, who does not believe that they were falsely uh, imprisoned and believes that they should still be there. So do you think you'll watch it one day, John? Oh, man. I I don't know. I hope to. Like I said, I want to watch it. It seems like something I'd be interested in, especially as an attorney and someone who has, um, who was really interested in the justice system and how it works, but it's something, especially bearing in mind my experience, which of course is much less harsh than these boys, um, just experience with law enforcement generally and pressure generally like that. I don't, I just don't know. It's important for us as, um, activists and anti-racists and allies to, take care of ourselves so we can be our most effective and I don't know if watching the the series um, would add to my effectiveness or whether it would hurt me to the point where I would be less effective and um, and wounded from it so I, I I don't I don't know the answer to that but I hope to watch it yeah um, and I, I appreciate not being pressured into watching it of course. I, a lot of people don't um, I think a lot of people just don't understand why folks are, can't watch it. Um, so I hope that we've sort of conveyed that here. Well, that's what was on my mind this week. It was tough. But yeah, it's a tough one. That was it, yeah. So we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have our interview with Kia Hufeng. So we're so excited to talk to Kia Hufain. She's an expert in urban education. Um, hi, Kia. Hi, how are you? We're doing great. Hi there. So 
uh, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about uh, your background and uh, your career in education. Sure. So I have been in education since graduating college, so I don't want to date myself too much. (laughs) Uh, But I started out in Teach for America as an English and history teacher in Philly um, at a very small school on the south side of the city. And then I moved up to New York, where I taught um, in Harlem and then in Brownsville, Brooklyn, which is a very underserved and under-resourced community. After that, I left the classroom as a teacher and stepped into a school administration role um, in Harlem. So I went back to my roots in Harlem and uh, then went on to become a principal at one of the highest performing schools in the state of New York. Um, And so... I am passionate about urban education, and I'm also really passionate about ed reform and what needs to change in this country so that we can see more kids going off to college and more kids becoming successful in whatever career path they choose. I hope the folks that are listening to this this podcast and, and everyone who has been paying attention to what has been going on recently within the federal education department, but also on the local level, can agree with the fact that there ha- there needs to be some attention, more attention paid to this, because this is there's so many schools that are that are struggling so hard. So, you know, Kia, what is your what is your current role for the organization that you work for, and and sort of what is your what is your sort of day to day look like on the schools that you visit? So, I spent the last year doing education consulting um, with a company that supports schools in districts across the United States. Um, I spent a lot of time in Chicago and in Syracuse, um, in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, I've been all over the place in the past year. Um, and my role is to support principals and school leadership teams as they try to turn their schools around. Um, I just stepped into a role that is going to be based in New York, um, where I'll be the senior senior director of leadership development for a network of charter schools that's in New York, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Wow, that's that's pretty awesome. Um, so when you say uh, turn these schools around, what can you, can you explain that a little more? What are you seeing? What are the things that, that you're trying to change? First, I want to say contrary to popular belief, um, I don't believe anyone gets into education to just do their job at a very basic level. I think you have a lot of teachers in schools who have given their sweat, blood, and tears um, to schools and to other people's children um, for their entire professional lives. And what I've seen is that, unfortunately, that level of respect for teachers and the work that they have done is not there. It's also not there for the principals and the school leadership teams on a very large level. And so while I see a lot of problems in the schools that I go into, one of the things that I know is that no one is happy with the way things currently are. And I think that that's a really big misconception, especially when you talk about schools that have been historically failing for years. Hmm. Um, When I talk about turning around a school, what I'm talking about is going in and supporting principals and their leadership teams as they try to improve the academic outcomes for the students that they serve. More often than not, the schools that are struggling the most are also schools that happen to serve um, black and brown children. And so it's, in my opinion, a crisis. I actually got into teaching because I saw what was happening in Philadelphia, right? right. A city you have so many amazing universities, but the schools right outside of those university campuses, Temple's a great example, are failing, right? And so you have schools that our kids will never be able to get into academically, and that starts at the elementary school level. 
Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, full disclosure, Key and I uh, are old classmates from Temple. We, we went there from 2004 to 2008. And so we would see the neighborhood schools in the area. And I think that's originally, correct me if I'm wrong, what sort of piqued your interest in this um, as you were living in the neighborhoods that surrounded, you know, Temple's campus in North Philly. And so as you approach this as a black woman, you go through these schools and, and like you just mentioned, there are schools that are black schools and schools that are white schools. And that is just a common, normal thing in this country. Um, We looked up some of the statistics and around the country, it now looks like as of 2016, uh, 20 million students of color are in, currently attend racially and socioeconomically isolated public schools. And Mm -hmm. that number is up from 14 million to 20 million. Um, It's up from 2001. And so what are what are some of the effects that you've seen of this sort of racial isolation? Um, and is it, you know, is it just racial or are there other sort of components at play here, like economics? I believe economics are actually the main driving factor in the segregation that I see in schools. With the gap widening between wealthy Americans and Americans who are living below the poverty level, there is this sense of getting up and getting out, Hmm. right? And what I see in a lot of the places that I go and support are the students and families who didn't have anywhere else to go. To be perfectly honest, in large cities, it is incredibly difficult to pack up and move just to get to a better school, right? You need those resources in hand. In New York to move, you need three months of rent plus fee. So we're talking $10,000, $11,000 in some cases, which is not feasible for a lot of people. And so you're essentially stuck until you can afford to move. And that's just when you think about families that are living paycheck to paycheck, as so many in America are, it's almost impossible. As a child, my mom moved into a very solid town and she saved as much money as she could and worked three jobs to make sure that I was in a school district that was what she perceived to be great. And a lot of families, especially when you're looking at New York City and major urban areas, don't have the luxury of doing that because the cost of living and the cost of moving is so dramatically high. And so... In the schools that I've worked in, to be perfectly honest, I've never actually taught a student who isn't or doesn't identify as a person of color. Hmm. Wow. And wow. I've, you know, I've been teaching and in education for over 10 years. And so when you think about that, it's, right. it's startling. Um, what I see as a big issue with that is that you have students who are not meeting people who have different life experiences. I think what you do see is that when students are in situations where they're around people who do not look like them, they clam up. Um, I was recently at a high school graduation for students that I taught um, when they were in sixth grade. And one of the students asked me, you know, I said, are you excited about college? And he said, I'm nervous. I'm going to a school that's mostly white. And I've been in that environment before. And so there's a there's a real fear and a real level of second guessing when you're all of a sudden thrust into a different environment and a different space. And so I often think about whether my students will feel confident in their abilities in spaces that are mixed racially. Um, I question whether or not they will know how to deal with the first time they encounter a microaggression from right one who is not 
a person of color. Um, and I also worry that, you know, when we look at college graduation rates as they're tied to first-generation students of color, they're the least likely to graduate in four years. And so it's terrifying to think about the fact that the K-12 experience when you are so isolated really will end up playing into your confidence and your feeling like you belong in higher education and academia. And so that to me is one of the the biggest things that I've seen. Um, the other challenge that I see is that a lot of the teaching force are not people of color. Yeah. Right. And so when you see middle schoolers who are in an all black school or an all black and brown school, I should say, and they're being taught mainly by white teachers, that also sends a message. And that seems like something that that just is a is an endless cycle. I mean, if you if you're a student and you don't see teachers who look like you, why would you grow up to think you could be a teacher then? Mm-hmm. Or any other any other professional of any, you know, if yeah. it's, if it's in, in a neighborhood that is so sort of economically and racially isolated, like you said, Kia, not only is it the first time, uh, when some of these kids are going to college, it's the first time that they're leaving their area mm-hmm. geographically. It's also the first time they're seeing all of these different types of, like you mentioned, races of people and young black and brown kids already have you know, what you've just described, which some people call imposter syndrome, going into these spaces thinking they're not good enough to be there and they're not good enough to, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, they don't, they feel different or other being there. Um, mm-hmm. And that just has to be such a sort of painful, I don't, you know, I don't even really, <laughs> I'll stop here and say, I don't really know what my question is other than just me saying, <laughs> holy shit, that that's yeah. like really fucked yeah. up. And yeah. Um, so Kia, you mentioned these sort of very isolated schools and we know that public schools uh, the funding from public schools comes from, in large part, from local property taxes of the the homes and the areas of the neighborhood. And so um, that doesn't seem like a thing that's going to change. And so what it, what can we do to to start pushing this in the right direction and, and start seeing schools that are not 98% one race um, – drawn on stark neighborhood lines just based on the tax code and property values? What do you, you know, I'm asking you a huge question, but what are your thoughts? Honestly, uh, when I think about New York, I think about the fact that it is probably the most segregated school district in the country. It is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and part of it is that we are so self-absorbed in this country that until it dramatically impacts us personally, we don't start to fight for things. And so I think about the fact that, you know, I've lived in Harlem now for nine years. And in those nine years, the neighborhood that I moved into is nowhere near the same neighborhood, right? I think about all of the gentrification that is happening and all of the increases in housing costs, And the fact that uh, with gentrification, of course, you get things like a nice shiny new Whole Foods and great restaurants, but you're also losing a lot of the community that has been there for generations. And so um, one of the districts that I worked in when I first moved to New York was one of the lowest performing in the state. And now it's not because you have families who are moving in with access to resources and they're starting to demand shifts in their schools. The challenge though, is that with that increase in the demand, you're also starting to see the families who cannot afford it be pushed further out. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you're disrupting this entire 
community that has been, you know, predominantly black for generations, right? You think of Harlem, you think of like the Northern black Mecca of just, you know, culture and art and history and music. And, you know, it's just, it's very hard to see it play out in front of your eyes and know that I'm also part of the problem, right? As a upper middle class black woman, I can afford to pay the astronomical rents that they're asking for in this neighborhood. And so when more people like me start to move in, we are becoming part of the problem, especially if we're not demanding that all schools improve. And I think it starts with demanding that, you know, voters elect elected officials who see education as their number one platform. Hmm. Yeah. And you, you definitely, you know, April and I uh, were discussing this the other day that we're a part of that problem too, the gentrification mm-hmm. issue. We want, you know, moving into as young sort of middle class professionals or upper middle class professionals um, moving into neighborhoods that we can afford to move into, but mm-hmm. that also our presence ends up pricing people out in such a way that the folks that are there that have been there forever can't afford to pay there anymore. And so, but, you know, to your point about electing officials, you know, even when we see schools that have a plan to, to try to open their doors to lower serve communities, um, we see pushback. Like we Mm -hmm. discussed last year at PS 199 in New York city, it made big news because there was a school board meeting where they were going over the plan to, you know, save spots in the admissions process for, for um, underserved communities. And the parents were, you know, were raising cane about it and were yelling and there's all this video of it. And so um, if you could, you know, sort of speak on your experience with that, that would be, I think, interesting to hear if you, if you have any experience with Mm -hmm. actual initiatives where that, where that's, they're trying to do what you're describing, but being hit with so much pushback from the largely white parents. Yeah, it's, that was a very hard um, story to watch unfold last year because you have two groups, right? You have the parents who are fighting against reserving spots for disadvantaged students. And they're doing that to try to protect the integrity of their children's schools, right? Which I don't know a parent who wouldn't fight to protect their children, but they're not looking out for the fact that there are children who are trapped in schools that have been failing for generations, right? In New York, we're not talking about schools that just started failing, We're talking about schools that have been failing since kids' grandparents went to them, Hmm. and there hasn't been a shift. Um, When I think about PS199, it is a classic example of people who have already got theirs, so to speak, only looking out for themselves. Out of fear, but that fear is not justified, and the concern should be, why are we needing to move kids from failing schools Mm. in the first place, right? Why are these schools allowed to fail? In New York, quite honestly, it's because principals' hands are tied. And I would say that that is the case in a lot of large districts that are heavily controlled by the teachers' union. I am not anti-union in any way, shape, or form, but I do believe that there are certain things that are in place in union contracts that make it near impossible for principals to hold teachers accountable, Right. If you're a teacher and you've been failing students for 10 years, in my opinion, you shouldn't be allowed to get a paycheck. And the teachers who are failing, instead of being removed from the classroom, get moved from school to school to school. 
And I'll give you one guess where most of those teachers end up. So I'm going to go back a little bit. When we talk about, you know, gentrification and people who can afford to begin moving into neighborhoods where housing is a little more expensive and, you know, you begin pushing other people out who can no longer afford to live in those neighborhoods, that then raises the value of the homes in that neighborhood, increasing the property taxes and funding the schools. Is the solution to simply, before that happens, be funding these schools in those um, underserved communities so that it's not the result of uh, wealthier people moving in. It's that we're looking and saying, oh, this school is failing. We need to help before all of these changes in the neighborhood start. Is that one solution? I think that's definitely part of it. Um, I think a bigger piece, though, is that there needs to be a better mechanism for teacher training. And specifically when you're working with historically disadvantaged communities and disenfranchised communities, I think that there is a genuine need to improve the way that teachers are being prepared to enter classrooms. Um, Teachers need to understand how to support students who are dealing with really severe trauma. And that trauma doesn't necessarily mean experiencing violence. It can be something like getting evicted, right? How do you handle that when you see a student who is moving from shelter to shelter to shelter? How do you prepare teachers for walking into a community that they may never have been a part of? And how do you support teachers of color in recognizing, number one, their importance in historically disenfranchised communities and in their schools, but then also how do you help them recognize their own privilege? When I walked into the classroom, I thought that I would be the person who related to students easily because I am a person of color. The truth is I have nothing in common with my students other than that. And so it's a flawed assumption, but it's one that a lot of people have about teachers of color. And it's It's incredibly disheartening to see really passionate young people getting into teaching and coming to schools that genuinely need them, right? The amount of classes and schools that I've gone into that don't have a full teaching staff is terrifying because every day that a child has a substitute teacher, they're not necessarily getting that same instruction that they would from someone who is certified in the subject or someone who um, has written the content and curriculum. And so... Anytime a young person comes into these schools and they're dealing with the trauma and they're not getting the support either because admin is stretched too thin or because admin doesn't have the skills to support them in unpacking the trauma, it builds this wall between the teacher and the student. And it also forces the teacher to start evaluating, is this where I want to be? Right? Or do I want to go somewhere where it's not as challenging? And so in urban schools, you also have a lot of teacher turnover right. from year to year. And that alone sets children back. Because right? no consistency. No consistency. And it's another form of abandonment. And it's a, that's, um, a, that is a, um, a criticism, a, a, a known criticism of Teacher America, the program that you took part in coming right right out of college, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, signs up young, smart uh, professionals who are motivated, um, but it's it's 
for teaching opportunities and it's a two year program usually. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the, the track is to do that and then teachers either stay or they leave, but a lot of them leave. And so that is one of the criticisms of a program that has a two year time frame up front that is well-meaning. And all we, all these teachers we're talking about, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt are, you know, are well-meaning exactly. and excited to be there. But programs, even programs that are looking to help solve the problem are receiving criticism because there's that risk as well of that abandonment risk and that like failure to be invested in the community and actually live there and want to help things get better. I want to acknowledge that. And I think you and I have talked about that as you, you know, Kia, as having served in TFA. Um, My students didn't, I was not a good teacher my first two years. And Mm -hmm. I think about the fact that I was a reading teacher. I was a history teacher for the same group of kids for two years. And I, I didn't have the skills that I needed. Mm. And, you know, it was really hard. And there were times where I was like, I'm done. I want to do something different. But as soon as I went to a school where I did have the supports to number one, push me and to challenge me and where I was treated like a professional, I saw this as a career and not just a stepping stone to something different and better. And I think that's really what's missing from a lot of schools is that feeling of, I want you to be able to do this for your entire life, but I want you to do it at the highest possible level. So what do you say to um, young, recently graduating college, a white person who wants to teach in an urban area where most of their students are going to be black or brown? Do they just not do that? What? Or do they do it but take, um, you know, some steps um, to help them be better prepared? What, what do you say to them? Mm. I would say to them that there will be no, there will be no easy day. You're going to learn more than you probably thought you could, and you'll be stretched in ways that no other school or other environment will stretch you. You'll find out what you're really made of, but you have to remember every single day that the students that you are privileged to serve and teach, because I I do genuinely believe that. They are more than a story that you tell when you go home for Thanksgiving. Um, They are more than whatever test scores they may have produced the year before or the month before, depending on where you are. They are absolutely brilliant and they deserve you at your absolute best. And so what you need to do is educate yourself on the history of the community that you're going into, right? Look at school histories, right? Have schools been on failing lists or persistently dangerous lists for generations? Has Mm. there been a lot of teacher turnover? Um, Is the administration new, right? Educate yourself on what you're walking into because that is how you become a true community activist. And when I think about teachers, I genuinely think we need more people who see themselves as activists in the classroom and in their communities. Um, The other thing I would say is to educate yourself by reading, right? Crack open some books. Uh, Zaretta Hammond's Culturally Relevant Pedagogy and the Brain is one of my favorite books, and I wish I had read it when I first started teaching. Making sure that you, number one, recognize that Every child in front of you is capable of great things. I think, unfortunately, when we uh, are in communities that are historically disadvantaged and underserved, I see a lot of low expectations for kids. Um, So I I would tell people who are looking to get into the profession, especially people who are um, 
young and white and probably from a different socioeconomic background as our kids. Um, you can't assume that where they start the year is where they'll, they'll finish. That is the kiss of death for them. Mm. All right. So that is really helpful. Um, I think we should take a second and note just generally that there are so many wonderful, talented, brilliant children that go through these systems and come out and do great things. Um, I think it's important to, when we're examining blackness generally and the ways that, that race harms a lot of people in this country in certain ways, it's important to stop and say that this is not the way that we're defining these kids. Um, this mm-hmm. is a problem that they're experiencing that we're trying to point out and bring attention to. And that and, so many of them overcome. And that so many of them overcome. And you just reminded me of that, Kia, because of the of what you were saying and that, you know, when, especially when they're equipped with the right tools, it is the chances of, of great things coming from it are even higher and even better. But despite not having a lot of the tools needed and being underserved in so many ways, we are still seeing great things um, come from young black students. Um, And so I just want to just pause and say that. And I wonder if you could, while we have your, you know, on the line, we have to make sure that we, we get your advice on to, to young parents who are, you know, I'm picturing young white liberal urban dwelling parents who want to be racial allies and want to do the best to be anti-racist and fight white supremacy, but also want their kids to go to good public schools, high performing public schools. What, what do you say to them as a, in terms of advice? I would say that they have to, and I, I will even lump myself into this because I've been thinking about it a lot, a lot, People in a position of power, whether they are uh, a white urban dwelling parent moving into a community or people like us who are living in a city right now that is experiencing gentrification and shifts, uh, we've got to use our power and privilege to ensure that what we would want for our own children is what is happening in the school down the street. And that is something when I work with principals and when I work with teachers, every single time I sit and I ask them, is this what you would want for your child? If the answer is not a clear yes, then we're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is how I have always, always uh, looked at myself as an educator. If I wouldn't want it for my kids or for my little sister or for, um, you know, my cousins and nieces and nephews, then it's not good enough. And until we can confidently say that we live in a neighborhood where the school is what we would want it to be, or we pay taxes to a city where the schools are what we want them to be, we've got to fight harder. And so instead of running to another neighborhood. Yes. And Mm -hmm. it's doable, right? The people that, the people that unfortunately get heard are the people who have access, right? So you look at parents who are doctors or lawyers or, um, you know, in finance or or in tech. When they speak, people listen. And that's Mm. not right. That is absolutely not right. But if we know that that is the case, we need to be the people who are fighting for the change. Mm. We also need to uh, make sure that we're involving parents in schooling. Right. And so when we think about parents who have grown up in failing schools, there's a level of mistrust 
all that starts when kids go into school because they've been failed by that system. So why would it be any different for their child? And so it's also making sure that parents have the resources to really fight for what they need. And so, um, you know, as a lawyer, offering services up to families who may need legal advice or consult, really community back into schools are things that we need to do because that's when you see people working together. And that's when you see that collective belief that things can change. So quite honestly, I I would just say to um, young urban white parents, like, get out there, get involved. And you also don't have to be a parent to get involved in schools. If you pay taxes and if you vote, what happens in these schools is of interest to you. And so get to know the communities, find out what resources a school needs or what services you can provide giving your own skill set and just get in there. Because right now schools are operating in such an isolated place that it's it's very hard to to remember that there is a community behind you. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Well, I, lit. I was going to say, <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate you taking the the time to speak with us today, Kia, and I am, I'm excited to see what you continue to do, uh, with, with your career. And it sounds like it's going to continue to be great things. And I hope that, that our listeners can, can benefit from this conversation. It's, it's, I can confidently say it's the work of my life and I wish more people could see and feel that joy and that success of really watching kids learn and grow and not just be successful, but thrive. Well, I have to say Kia, um, you do give me hope after this conversation. So thank you for that. Good luck to you uh, in the future. So now it's time for this episode's action item. So this episode's action item uh, involves the workplace. So we want to ask that everyone go out into their workplace and sort of take an assessment of the racial uh, diversity of your of your business of your job the next step is to go to your hr department and make an actual inquiry about what your organization is doing to recruit and not only recruit but to retain uh employees across a number of differences and and if you're not satisfied with what they're doing continue to follow up with them and push them to do more and ask how you can help yeah, great. It's a this is a great it's a great point. Organizations love to do the sort of performative work of having diversity committees and councils that they form to make it look like um, they're taking this seriously. And a lot of times they are taking it seriously, but they don't know what to do to actually um, push the organization forward. So get in there, get on those committees, and use your practical knowledge to increase the representation and retention of of colleagues of color and across all types of differences push to do it be the person in your office that does that you can listen to black and on apple Podcasts, google play stitcher and spotify be sure to rate review subscribe um wherever you listen and tell your friends this episode was produced by april perkins Uh, our theme music is written and produced by fifth child you can check out more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com that's the number five in fifthchildmusic.com Until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and and keep keep asking asking questions. questions.